0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to These Go to 11. Once again, I'm Nathan Bell, your host. Greg Dutcher sitting across from me. Greg, how are you doing?
1: I am doing great, Nathan, and by the miracle of calendar timing, we won't reveal the date that we are recording this. That's right. But just a few days before Christmas now.
0: That's right. Um, it's uh, the week of Christmas right now, as our listeners will be hearing this for the first time, got a great guest joining us, uh, Dr. Rick Phillips. Um, Rick, how are you today? I'm doing
2: great. Good to be with you guys.
0: Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, Rick. So uh, our listeners have an idea of uh, who you are, friends, family, what you do. So whatever you feel comfortable yeah. with out there.
2: Sure. I, um, I'm a minister in the Presbyterian Church in America, and I pastor a church in downtown Greenville, South Carolina. Downtown wonderful Greenville, South Carolina. Yes. Uh, Second Presbyterian Church, and... Uh, I've been a minister for, I've been preaching weekly for 20 years, which has just been a great blessing. Wow. And uh, I was, I came to faith in Christ at age 30. I was a graduate student in Philadelphia, and I, uh, oh. at my mother's nagging, I went over, went to the nearest church, which was 10th Presbyterian Church, yes. and yes. James Montgomery Voice was preaching Christ, and I believed in him. Wow. By the power of the Holy Spirit, and uh, grew in my faith there, met my wife Sharon there, uh, and I was actually a military officer at the time. And I was on my I was in grad school uh en route to be an assistant professor at West Point. Uh, wow. I was a, I was a tank officer and uh, uh I was doing a three year tour teaching at West Point And got involved in campus evangelism there and the Lord called us into the ministry and uh went back to tenth was at Westminster Seminary, which was a, one of the great privileges of my life. Wow. And then I, I graduated, I became the evening preacher at Tenth Pres. How about that? and wow. uh I had the great privilege of uh knowing Jim Boyce pretty intimately. Uh, He and I traveled together. I I was with him in the work of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, and so uh, I was very close to him until his death in 2000. Yes. And then, um, yes, I've just been uh, preaching the Word. I'm very privileged to write books. Uh, A lot of my writing these days is commentaries. Uh, Mm -hmm. With with Philip Reichen, I do the Reformed Expository Commentary Series, so... uh, you know, I travel and speak, and uh, this last weekend, I was traveling to Ann Arbor, Michigan with my teenage sons to go see Michigan lose to Ohio State. Oh, <laughs> you, Oh, wow. wow. I'm a Michigan graduate, so gotcha. it was pretty shocking, but it was wonderful. Wow. So, um, I have uh, my wife and I have five children. Actually, you talked about, uh, when we were preparing for this, you talked about it, uh, when my children were little. My children are little. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My oldest daughter is um, is a freshman in college, and I go down to five... Uh, two teenage
1: sons and two middle school girls oh, oh wow. how about that yeah. how about that you've got a whole gamut there covered rick uh that is it's, um, wonderful hey i i have to tell you my my church has heard me mention this once or twice i never and it must have been a a obviously a divine purpose in this but i was never able to uh see slash hear person to person uh james boyce preach heard him many times via tape and but today internet and even i think radio from time to time um i went in, between the late 80s and about the mid 90s uh several times to hear dr boyce preach and every time i went <laughs> he wasn't preaching um which is is rare because he preached quite regularly didn't he well he traveled fairly. in his
2: later years he traveled a lot yes so uh- I was his associate, we loved him when he traveled. We got to preach
3: more right, right. <laughs> you
2: know my last the last three years of his life there uh I preached every Sunday morning at nine a m Jim preached at eleven and Phil Reichen preached in the evening. Wow, and those were wonderful years for us all and uh you know Jim used to sit through my service every week and sit under the word as I preached it and, uh, he was my spiritual father. I loved him very much. Wow. He was a great preacher, in fact, driving up to to Michigan this week, I was playing boy sermons to my boys. No both way. Both of whom were baptized by him but didn't know him. Wow. Um, and even today, my son was filling out a. My oldest son's a high school senior, applying for an honors program. And something, you know, things that boys said in the sermon were on his mind. He was wow. such
1: a powerful preacher of God's word. He really was. He sure was. He sure was. And you. Um, I mean, I am just fascinated by that. I, I love. Um, you know, just, just learning about the, well, I mean, 10th Press has been such an incredibly illustrious church, uh, for, for so many years, decades, really. And, um, uh, so you, um, I mean, he really was a spiritual father to you. Can can you tell us a little bit, Rick, just about your, uh, connection with him, the way he mentored you? Well, you know, um,
2: Jim was a very shy guy who was not at all gregarious. I mean, he was the last Person in the room, you would walk up and slap on the back. Right. <laughs> he is a very formal person. Yes. And um, I don't think that he really had been known for mentoring people. He was so busy doing his own thing. I mean, writing, you know, writing his books, traveling, and doing those things. But, um, you know, I, I, I think I, I got there at a time when um, he was getting a little older and was starting to think about those things. Yeah. And and actually he see he, I'll never forget he came to me. Um I was about to graduate seminary and uh and he was looking at me during the sermon. He kept looking at me. Yeah. And I said to my wife, I said, He's got something on his mind for me and I didn't really know him that well at the time. I was an intern of the church. Yeah. And he came over and said, I need your help. I want you to run the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Oh wow. And I said, You know, honestly, I didn't leave the army to run your ministry. <laughs> I, I left the army to preach the word. And he goes, Oh, I understand I just, I really need your help. Would you please do it? Now, wow. this is the man under whom I came to faith in Christ. Wow. And I, and I use it as a story because, you know, often the way to find your calling is by serving the Lord where you're needed. Yeah. And I thought that I was putting myself on the shelf. I wanted to go and preach. Yeah. Uh, and he said to me, don't worry, I'll take care of you. And, and he did. Yeah. But uh, in fact, as a result of that, I. I traveled with him extensively. I started speaking at conferences with him. Yes. I was writing books with him and whatnot. So that's how I be when you travel with a guy, when you're having breakfast and dinner and hotels and you, you know him well and, and he and I hit it off very well. Wow. Uh, and he was I will say this, he was a he was a he was a he was a wonderfully godly man in private. Yes. And he was a he had a joyful spirit. Yeah. Um and we would talk about preaching, we would talk about the Bible, and you know, I, 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 I'm constantly thinking of things that Jim said to me about preaching or the Bible or ministry, that's really what we talked about. Wow. And uh, he was a very loving person, but he was really shy, is yeah. the truth. So, I don't think there were a lot of people who who were close to him Sure. Uh, for that reason, and just in the providence of the Lord, I was so blessed, I, and, and I had the privilege of Being close to him up until really the day before he died. Wow. And so I was one of several people, his secretary, Phil Reichen, a couple others, who saw him regularly in those days. But uh, that was really memorable. In fact, I'll say this the last time that I saw uh, Jim Boyce, it was either the day before he died or the day before that. And he was ravaged by this cancer. And he had, you know, he'd written these hymns that have become well known. Yeah. And some of the music had just been written and he'd never heard it. So. A bunch of us went over to sing the hymns to him. Wow. Paul Jones, Bill Reich, and me, Mary Beth, his secretary. And so we sang a couple of the ones that just got music, and then we sang what was all of our favorites, his hymn, Come to the Waters, out of Revelation 22. Mm. And come to the water, whoever's thirsty, drink from the fountain that never runs dry. This says, great gospel stuff. So we're sitting on the couch afterwards, and he can barely speak. Yeah. And he put his hand on my arm. This is the last time I see him. Wow. He says, now, do you see, Rick, what's happening in that hymn? Mm. It all flows to Jesus. Wow. Don't you ever forget. It, it's, it's, we're leading people to Jesus. Wow. And I have never forgotten that. Oh. And that really, you know, Jim Boyce was, the, was a great Calvinist because he was a great Christian. Yes, yes. And, and I don't say that to denigrate the distinctness of the Reformed faith. Right. But... The things that he was most passionate about as a Calvinist were the things that all Christians should be most passionate about. Right. The person and work of Christ, the glory of God, the the uh, the sufficiency of the Word of God. Yes. Those were the themes of his ministry. And, I, and he was so distinguished from some Reformed guys who they're all about are peripheral issues of polemical concern. Right. Mm, right. Jim was a, I mean, he was a, he was a, complete Calvinist. Yes. Yes. Yeah, right. That, that it's like John Calvin's motto was my heart. I give to the Lord, quick, promptly and unreservedly. And it was all about the personal work of the Lord Jesus. He was, that's what, that's what made him great was his passion for the central things, which he preached and taught in a clearly biblical, IE reformed manner. Yes. So we want to be the kind of reformed teachers who help people, not so much understand the esoteric. I mean, that could be fun. Yeah. but what we're really doing is leading them to Jesus Christ.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and th- those Prophet. are g- great, great stories, Rick. Thank you. And I, um, you are right. I mean, I've I'm still using uh, many of uh, you know, Boyce's books, as so many preachers are. I just uh, recently wrapped up Joshua, and uh, you know, he was a go to source for me. I mean, just yeah. uh, so good at illustrating. Um, and then I I I hate to say this I would double dip because I always put a few quotes uh, from you know pastors and theologians in my own sermons and I would get it's these good. great Boyce quotes but I would also get these great Francis Schaefer quotes that were right. in Boyce's commentary so, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah I try do the same thing in my commentaries is yes to educate
2: people about quality literature absolutely you know, when, I, when I was a new believer. That's how I got my Reformed Library. Boyce would mention Francis Schaeffer, so I'd go by Francis Schaeffer. Yes. And he'd mention A.W.
1: Pink. I'd go, right, then Charles Spurgeon. Yes. He would quote them, I would read them, and I was greatly blessed that way. Wow, wow, that is, wow, that is just so neat. And I remember uh, it was in 2000, yes, when uh, when Dr. Boyce died, my friend Matt Smith, who's another pastor, he's a regular guest on this podcast, was at, I believe, the Ligonier Conference that year, and he said, now, this is, you know, a guy interpreting something he noticed uh, about two men that he he never knew. But uh, when they announced during that conference that Dr. Boyce had passed, because I think initially, if I remember rightly, he was going to be a guest speaker at that right. conference. Um, people applauded. And my friend Matt said, it just seemed a little bit out of sorts. They were applauding because obviously he's in glory, uh, received his reward. Um, and uh, Matt always says, "I'm convinced Sproul looked uncomfortable with that. Like it was a a, a, a missed." Well, I was
2: the one. I was the one who called R.C. Sproul that day. Oh, is that right? Um, and we cried together on the. Wow! Party. Wow! And he was so. I was. You know, he really was my spiritual father. Wow! And I was. I was. I was. You know, very much lifted up by the whole experience. Wow! I felt like Elisha watching Elijah go up in the church. with fire. In fact, when I preached. At tenth on before his death, I preached on Elijah rising the terrors of fire and and what is the mantle that falls upon us wow. I was just so privileged and so blessed to be a first hand participant, but I was personally devastated as well of I course r
1: c was the same way i 'm sure i 'm sure, and uh, the uh uh, you know, I putting you on the spot here. Do you do you have a a voice imitation? Few seminary guys I went to could do a great voice, the the sort of deep gravelly voice uh, that was so powerful. So uh, you know, I, he was pretty gravelly. Yeah, he really was. <laughs> he I mean. Was. Yes, no doubt about that. Yes, yes, he was. And I uh I loved him. I listened to him so often. So that's boy, that's that's really, really fascinating. I could talk to you about Dr. Boyce all day, but I'll let Nathan jump in here with uh with some other things.
0: Well just um just to let our listeners know, we are talking with uh Doctor Richard Phillips. Um we are gonna be discussing um the commentary um he wrote um, called, Greg, I'm going to let you take this one.
1: It's uh, the Incarnation of the Gospels. That if I just, right. I I, I actually, I used it um, this past week because uh, it was a well-timed gift because uh, I'm preaching a little series called The Original Christmas Carols doing the hmm. four songs in Luke 1 and 2. Hmm. And uh, I think that's Phil Reichen's section in, in, uh, in that compilation of which uh, it's uh, Phil Reichen, Yourself, which is incredible, isn't Phil's stuff incredibly good? Oh, it's so good! It's It's incredibly good. Yeah, Yeah, that that loose material is blew me away. Yes, I was
2: I was the editor for that material, oh, how about that? Really
1: good. Yes, and I'm I'm just now this week uh, into uh, into Zechariah's song, the the Benedictus, Mm -hmm. of course, uh, and uh, Phil uh, right into that section. Dan Doriani uh, and I've just kind of skimmed the other parts, but I'm really looking forward to getting into Can you tell us about that? Well, how about this first, Rick? Could you tell us about the uh, Reformed expository commentary in general, some of its goals, aims, distinctives, and then this volume in particular?
2: Yeah, thank you. We are uh, engaged in a long-range project to do expository commentaries on the entire Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, And the editorial team is Philip Reichen and I are the series editors. Daniel Doriani of Covenant Seminary is the New Testament editor and uh, Ian Duguid of Westminster Seminary oh, is the Old Testament editor. And so we have four commitments in it. First is that um, it is to, they are all thorough exposition of the text mm-hmm. that are, uh, they're biblical, they're doctrinal, they are applicatory, and they're Christ centered. Mm-hmm. And so uh, um, we want to, you know, I, I think that while we need the scholarly academic commentaries, the most useful commentaries for preachers, our expositional comments
1: yes I uh, completely agree and all
2: this all the chapters in our books were preached yes now they're they're edited but it's pretty much people because people will say oh you can't preach you know at a relatively high scholarly level and be relevant yeah. um yeah you can uh, yes. <laughs> yes and every chapter in those books was preached to regular folks yes uh, and where it came from was I felt and like I were sitting in Jim's old office not long after Jim had died and Phil had published with Crossway an Exodus commentary. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were just having a conversation saying, like, what do we do? I mean, do we, do we try to fill out the Boyce series? And we both said, no, we don't want to be doing that. Right, you know? right. And we just kind of said, let's do a commentary series. Yeah. And it's, it's one of the blessings of, of being involved in these things is uh, you think back to those conversations. Fifteen years later, we've got 20-some volumes out. Wow. And I think some of them are genuinely tremendous. I think, you know, I, I, of course, I'm one of the series editors, but I'm, we're really pleased. And uh, we are working hard. I mean, we work, people say, you know, it must be great to be a writer if you want to be a slave, (laughs) you know, because (laughs) we work a lot. And, uh, but, you know, everywhere I go these days, people talk to me about the commentaries and quote them and whatnot. And. Uh, our 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 goal has been that these would be in print a hundred years from now. We've really oh. tried to do our very best work. We edit each other ruthlessly. Yes. Um, Phil Phil Reikens, my editor, which is a miserable experience. <laughs> uh, he's the son of an English teacher. Oh he boy, imposes <laughs> yes. his pedantic writing style upon you. Oh my goodness. Um, which he has effectively done with me. He's, not, he's a great editor, but he's not easy. Yes. I edit him. I try to be mean, but I just right. not, I'm not as good. An editor as <laughs> <it. That's laughs> but um, you know, we've we've, uh, we've got uh, uh, some great volumes about to come out. We've got uh, Song of Songs by uh, Ian Duguid, which will open up that book for you. Yeah, I think it's the finest thing I've ever written. Is that kind of Song of Songs? I read the introduction and went, oh. Wow. So that's what it's about. Wow. <laughs> wow, well, that no. was helpful. That- uh, I've got a commentary on Revelation coming out next year. Um oh, excellent. Uh Derek Thomas has Ezra and Nehemiah coming out next year. Yes. So we're trying to do three a year. We don't always get to that. Sure. Mm-hmm. But uh we've got uh, we've gotten about twenty some volumes out and Lord willing we'll do the whole Bible. It'll probably take us another fifteen, twenty
1: years. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic, so, yeah. Right? I-, I can just say I use them. Benefit from them uh, greatly, and I, I could not agree with you more. I mean, the scholarly commentaries do have their place. There is no doubt. Um, you know, I've I've been doing some work, as I said, in Luke and, and Daryl Box. You know, two volume commentary on Luke is very good. Um, yeah, gets very very detailed and technical in in places. But I um, just appreciate more. And I, again, uh, I, years ago when I was in seminary there was a uh, a a black pastor who was invited to come and i wish i could remember his name he was in he had been in philadelphia for a time uh and one of our props brought him in just sort of as a as a guest critic and um you know i got done preaching my little probably poorly prepared sermon at the time and he was very gracious very kind but i'll never forget he just Looked at me and goes, N- now your name's Greg. And I said, yeah. And he goes, Greg, it was good, but put the cookies on the bottom shelf where everybody can reach him. Uh, <laughs> <and then> I <laughs> yeah. remember him saying, you got some good cookies there, well, but everybody's well, the got to you know, reach him. One thing that Boyce always emphasizes me is that we
2: speak profound things in plain language. Yes. Mm. Yes. We. He was a plain spoken man. Yes. Who dealt with powerful, profound things. Yes. And, uh. You know, I think that these kinds of books make great devotional reading. I read these commentaries devotion. I only edit about, I write a lot of them, and then I edit maybe half of them. But that means that there's occasional volumes that I was involved with that Phil edited and somebody else wrote. Right. And mm-hmm. I, read, I read them for my devotions. Yeah, yeah. And I'm reading a commentary right now, it's not in our series actually, it's another one. But I read expository commentaries for my devotions, and it's enormously enriched. Yeah. And I think for preachers, to read sermons, Spurgeon, Boyce, Lord Willing, our stuff, I think it's an extremely helpful thing. The other thing I like about our series was, you know, we, we wanted to be unabashedly Reformed. Yes. Uh, it is the reform. We're none of this, oh, you know, we're trying to be broad. No, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this, this is Reformed theology from right. the scriptures. Right. And we make no bones about uh, the clarity of the Reformed doctrine that we teach. Yes. So.
1: Excellent. Excellent, Rick. And uh, could, could you talk to us a little bit about this particular volume, which is a um, – I, I, I almost viewed it as a not a deviation from the series, and I was reading some of the preface and everything, but the uh, it, it's really an, an illustration of the series in the sense that, as you said, you've got – because these are real sermons, right, preached uh, by these men, scholars, but also pastors uh, – two congregations. So to me, they, they're they beautiful in in terms of their own enrichment, as you just mentioned, but they also illustrate wonderfully uh, the way we should preach Christmas texts, quote-unquote. Could you uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, just just give us your thoughts on that volume?
2: I think the idea for the volume, the incarnation of the Gospels, was, was came from Marvin Padgett, who at the time was the head of publishing at PNR.
1: Oh, sure, sure. I've talked to Marvin. And, and his thought was,
2: you know, um, Patches are preaching Christmas series, sermons. Yeah. And if we can model Christmas sermons, and we had done, at that point we had done, we would published Luke and Matthew, and I had preached the material on John, although I had not published my commentaries on John yet. Right. And so, uh, and we just wanted to do, you know, it's four sermons each, because there's four sermons usually in the Advent season. Yes. Um, and we're just trying to encourage people not to preach silly little ditties. Yes, but to teach the incarnation and the Gospels, right? And to do throw so with doctrinally centered expository preaching. Yes, and then we they, they said let's let's throw some you know materials in the end. We there's a a, a, a model um, uh, Easter or Christmas Eve sermon. Uh, I'm sorry, there's a model Christmas Eve service. Yes, from my church at the back, and all of us contributed things like that to help people think through liturgical issues. But um, yeah, we're just you know most pastors are going to preach. You know, you know I'm 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 sort of in the boys' school because I actually don't preach Christmas series. Oh, interesting. Uh, I'm uh, you know I, I I'd laugh. A voice never deviated at any time. I, I mean, he would preach an Easter sermon. But I mean, I used to joke a nuclear bomb could go off over the Delaware River and Jim Boyce would walk into the pulpit and say, "We continue our series in that." Hour. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know uh, but i think most of us are going to break off and do christmas type series and uh uh and so we're just trying to encourage people to do so very
1: substantively. Yes, yes, that's that's great. We just uh the podcast that, that is actually airing on December the 1st uh which is the night we're recording this. Uh we uh one of our local pastors here we talked about that very subject Rick about preaching christmas sermons and again uh, my uh, friend and comrade Steve Hartland, who's been a pastor in this area for years, says the problem is when you've been at a church for seven or eight years uh, and they pretty much know all your Christmas material <laughs> because there's a fairly limited canon. You know, Of course, you've got the two chapters in Matthew and in Luke, a theological Christmas, as it were, in John, few Old Testament prophetic texts. And then what we call the stretches, uh, you know, <laughs>
2: except they don't remember. Except for they don't remember the particulars of sermons preached ten years ago.
1: That's well. That we said that's the greatest benefit is that there is such a short-term memory. Uh, we don't remember what we preached ten years ago, so you could always go back and look at it, uh, uh, improve it. But uh, could yeah, not more highly recommend this series. Uh, I mean, the well, whole series, you. and and this uh, volume was excellent. Uh, and I, I wanted to ask you as well, Rick. Um, we were also sent, uh, uh, Roger Festa sent us uh, a book by James Boyce called The Christ of Christmas, which is uh, sitting on my desk. I have not had a chance to look at it yet, but uh, I'm assuming this is a very similar volume. Or th- is this a... It's a little different. I mean, uh, Jim, like
2: me, preached the last Sunday before Christmas. He would preach Christmas. Here, so ah, I see. That's what I did. That's what yes. I did. I- I'm preaching through Genesis, and my sermon on the first Sunday of December this year is on Genesis 1, 3 to 4. Oh, how about that? Um, so I'm just plowing along with my series, but I will stop. And that's just a collection of various ones that he did, not many of which are from the Gospels. Interesting. I, I'm, what I've done is actually my, all of my... I, I I have been for the last maybe 15 years preaching only Old Testament sermons. Wow. So I'm preaching, and I, I may do a book of it sometime, but I, all my Christmas sermons are Old Testament. My, my favorite one was... Uh, uh, the 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 um, uh, was the first one I preached was on uh, the Proto-Evangelion from Genesis uh, three fifteen. Yes, where I asked the question to whom was the gospel first preached, and the answer is Satan. Mm, yes. And, uh, but so actually, I'm, I'm preaching Isaiah eleven this Sunday for this this month for Christmas. Oh, great. A lot of those sermons in the Christ of Christmas, which are great sermons by yes. the way. and he's got an Easter version too. The Christ of the open tomb. Interesting. Uh, I don't think many of those are from the Gospels, to be honest with you. Wow. A lot of them are from the epistles, uh, dealing with the incarnation and the deity
1: of Christ, those sorts Mm. of things. Yes. Yes. And and Rick, talk to us about that. I mean, obviously, this is a subject near and dear to your heart. You've been preaching about these things for years, writing about these things for years. Just for our listeners that are hearing this, Christmas time. Uh, you know, we're bombarded with so much commercialization, so much sentimentalism, and and the you know I think it was Luther that said the the wonder, uh, the mystery of Christ, sort of you know sinking himself into human flesh is beyond human comprehension. And um, just talk to us about features of the incarnation that that should call for our adoration, our amazement, and um, you know uh, things that you've preached before, that you've highlighted that may be either taken for granted, overlooked. I'd just love to get your thoughts on that.
2: Well, if you take, you know, for instance, the prologue in John's Gospel, which is the material I have in that, in that volume, um, I mean, what a remarkable portion of Scripture that is. Yeah. And the whole idea, we have seen His glory. The, 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 he has, the Word has tabernacled among us, mm-hmm. full of grace and truth, and we have beheld His glory. You know, sometimes when I'm sharing the Gospel with someone, the way I'll start off is by saying, do you know that God has become man mm-hmm. in order to redeem us from our sin? And we always want to keep the incarnation linked to the atonement. Mm-hmm. There is a liberal theology that sentimentalizes the incarnation while removing the atonement. Yes. Jesus was born to die. Yes. And he saves us not by being a cute baby, but by being the uh, the perfect God-man who you know, is the Lamb of God for our sin. Yes. Yes. Um, But the the glory of of God the Son, who is eternally God. You know, Jesus did not become in the manger of Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. The eternal divine Son became man, was made man, as the Nicene Creed puts it. And he took up a true human nature that we might know him, and that he might fellowship with us, and that he might have sympathy with us in, in his life of sorrows and then that he would lay down that body and that blood uh, to redeem us. You know, as, as Hebrews 2 says, he became one of us. Uh, he, he became fully human in order to be the propitiation for our sins. Yes. Um, uh, these, are, I mean, these are great things. You know, a lot of people will say, you know, we shouldn't celebrate Christmas or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a good reason why Bible-believing churches have tended to do so, though. hmm because you know we don't want to go full blown Episcopalian and do the church calendar where we only preach and we preach a certain sermon. Right. My apologies. My apologies to godly Anglicans. Oh sure, <laughs> sure. <laughs> the, uh, we don't want to observe every week some saint's holiday or whatnot. But there is a wisdom in markers in the year that fix us on great truths. Mm. You know, I, I I don't really think of the Christmas season as commercial because I I guess I'm just not bought into it. Right. Uh, What I love is when I, in fact, I was not, I I took, I was off Sunday because I was at the Michigan Ohio State game. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, But I love coming back the Saturday after Thanksgiving, the ladies of our church decorate the sanctuary for Christmas. And just being back in the sanctuary with the wreaths up, the ribbons. And it's, you know, for me, and I think for the children of our church, and for the old people of our church, all of that is so tied to the Christ-centered worship focused on the gift of the Son. Yes, uh, I think that that rhythm of life can be very problematic. I know that the children of our church approach Christmas with a sense of awe, yeah, mm-hmm. because of the way that we handle it liturgically and in our in our preaching and in the music we do, and um, uh, I, I, I. I love it. Yes. yes. And I, I, I would think in our church, I, I, I my guess would be even like third graders, fourth graders, if you said, what's the best thing about Christmas? I'm not sure they would say presents. Right. I, I think they would say the worship experience of the church. Right. As it just slows everything down, gathers together, and uh, doxologically marches towards Christmas Sunday. Yes. Mm. Yes. Uh, and I do think that's a powerful corrective yeah. to the secularization of it.
1: Yeah, one of my favorite um, elements in a in a church service, uh, Rick, you know, in the Christmas season and I you know, Nathan, I think feel like we talked about this once before, but there is something really special. For instance, the song Oh Come All Ye Faithful. Mm. I have never been with a group of of evangelical believers that have not sung their hearts out. Mm-hmm. When that song it yeah. is just so beautiful. oh come, let us adore him, yeah. it is such to me it's a declared almost battle cry. Mm-hmm. This is why this narrative of Christmas captures our heart. It's not hallmark sentimentalism uh um, right it's not lights and candy mm-hmm. and cookies it's 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 this child that we want to adore, and it's um yeah, there is something very powerful
2: and that's the beauty of the hymns too I mean, um we start singing the starting the first Sunday after Thanksgiving. We open every service with a Christmas Carol, and we we see we have the, we have a morning and evening service, right? Doubly blessed, and I, I think I particularly love the evening services during the Christmas season, yeah, because the church is pretty packed, and uh, we have a good evening crowd normally, but at Christmas time it's really good. Oh, sure. And in uh, fact, I think this week I'm doing the Miracles of Jesus in the evening. Uh, I think I'm closing with a Christmas. I, I try to use Christmas carols as much as possible. Oh yeah, because you know there there is a, a repetitive experience. There's this we're we're doing these things by memory. We, we we there's a familiarity that is intimate. Yes, and I think it raises our our worship
1: to a higher pitch, just in terms of the way we're made as people. Yes, yes, agreed. Uh, we are uh, we're, we're doing the same thing. Uh, first uh, Sunday after. Uh, Thanksgiving, uh, we normally do one, maybe two carols, uh, and then uh, we increase it a little bit until we're just at Christmas, and it's all but carols. Years ago, um, a, a different iteration of our praise team, uh, and it's something that I should have managed a little better, didn't do as many Christmas carols, and we have just learned. If you want to ensure a church outcry, um, no kidding, ju- <laughs> just just don't do the great songs. And- you know, and you have to sing them. I mean there's something And from the children. The children oh. look at you like going,
3: come on. <laughs> I know.
1: I, there's a, like, can't we sing these songs in March? I'm, this is the only time to sing some of these great songs and uh, you know, d- d- just they're so faith building of uh, that's that's great, Rick. I'm just talking some to you about of our that greatest,
2: throws me. Some of our greatest theological lyrics are Christmas carols. Yes. I think the greatest hymn ever written is. Park,
1: the Herald Angels, oh, I Wesley. couldn't agree with you more. Hail yep. in
2: flesh the Godhead, see? Yeah. Hail the incarnate
1: deity. Come yes. on. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, and again, born to raise the sons of earth to give them second yeah. birth. Um, oh, I know. You know what's, what's so interesting, Rick, about that? That was my favorite um, Christmas song before I became a believer. I was 16. And I uh, always loved Christmas music, uh, even when I was 13, 14. My parents had an Andy Williams record I remember pulling out. Uh, I know every song on that record. Oh, don't you want the the most wonderful time of the year? Such a, you know, Andy Williams is all, he's in his tuxedo on the front of the album and oh, everything. Yeah. With that. Oh, I,
2: I, all through my childhood, I think,
1: Oh, yes, yes. Same here. And I um, just loved uh, when I would hear Hark the Herald Angel sing, Nat King Cold is a beautiful version of it. And it's so interesting. That was my favorite song. I, I the, 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 lyrics were completely lost on me in my unbelief. Uh, the Lord got a hold of me, opened my eyes, and it was almost like I, I re this song uh, because of the uh, the gospel was so clear. And I, was, I never knew the but gospel was why so I, clear.
2: That also highlights why we have to have the centrality of preaching. Yes. Because it is lost on the unbeliever. Yes. When I lived in Philadelphia, our neighborhood, which is a really old, very nice neighborhood in Philadelphia, would get together in our little local park and would do Christmas caroling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget the last time I was there. We're singing a heart to Herald angels sing. And they're singing every doctrine in the book. Yes. With yes. With no comprehension. No. It's, it's that, that actually saddened me. I was glad yeah. that they were glorifying the Lord. But I'm like, wow. Yeah. To sing these words, and it's just, a, there's no comprehension of the truth behind them.
1: Right. That's why we've got to preach as well as sing to him. A- Amen. Amen to that. Um, Nathan's going to throw a real curveball at you and, and deviate a little bit. Well,
0: actually, not quite yet because okay, I did okay. have um, I did have some questions for you um, about uh, worshiping your church around Christmas. Um, you said that uh, a lot of times you actually uh, don't deviate into Christmas sermons. What does your What does your Christmas Eve service look like? Um, is that well, something?
2: Actually, there's actually a copy of it in that volume. Yeah, okay. It's the lessons and carols. And the elders of the church, we read through the Christmas story. Mm-hmm. So it's a Vesper service
3: mm-hmm.
2: where we 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 read we we basically read through Luke, the the birth narrative. Yes. I think there's some other scatterings in there from John and um and we uh and we sing hymns in between. And then whatever text I read I then preach on.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So we actually have a policy at our church. There will be no gathered worship services of any kind that do not center on the preached word. Right. Right. And so even a sermon, a serious a, a, a service like that on a Wednesday night or Tuesday night, whenever it is, mm-hmm. um, I will preach. But uh, um, we also, we also have a Messiah, we have an evening service where our choir does the Messiah. Oh,
3: wow. And, wow. and
2: I've been preaching through the text of the Messiah year by year. Yeah. That's earlier in the, in the, in December. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's a worship service of carols and of it's, it's, it's carols and readings, yes, um, and the priest's word, and you know we do all the great hymns at that service, and it's just beautiful. Yeah. Wow, wow, and, and it's meant to be an aid to the family. I mean, you, you again, how you fight the commercialism? You go yes. to church on Christmas Eve, yeah. right, and then you talk to your children. You don't read the Santa Claus story, right? You you then talk about the texts that were read and. And the fathers and the mothers reiterate the doctrine. There's a a tendency for some people to think, oh, you know, we've heard it all before.
3: Right. Mm.
2: Yeah, we need to hear it again. Right, yeah. We need to be taught the deity of Christ. We need to be taught the incarnation. We need to be taught the
3: atonement
2: over and over and over. And uh, so that's the intent. That's a way for our families and our church to be particularly Christ centered as we observe the holiday. Yes. Mm. Uh, now, uh, Calvin, Calvin, you know, would be horrified. Right. Uh, I was reading through Calvin's sermons on Micah some years ago, and they they, they dated when they were all preached. And it was this weekday series. He you know, preached every day. Yes. And I noticed we were getting close to Christmas. And so I read the sermon on one day, the next day, okay, December 25th. And here's how Calvin begins uh, his sermon on Christmas Day. He says, I notice that our attendance is roughly double today. And I can only assume that many of you are here out of an idolatrous, superstitious attachment to December 25th. You are a stench in the nostrils of God. (laughs) And your mere presence here today will redouble your eternal wrath under God's holy justice. You know? Wow. There's always somebody more conservative than us. Yeah. Right? There's, you know, I, there's always somebody more reformed than me, and it's John Calvin.
1: I'm Rick, like, Rick you like, just... Sorry, John. I don't, sorry, Johnny Boy, I don't do that. You just I welcome the visitors. You just yeah. gave me my sermon manuscript for Christmas Eve. Thank you. I, I was looking for something fresh. I was looking for an angle that would really arrest people's attention, and I think I just got it. But uh, you, you talk about non-seeker sensitive. Your yeah.
2: presence <laughs> is a stench in the nostrils of God. Wow. Oh, wow, I'm yeah. Glad I brought my cousin.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that is good, Rick. That is good. I uh I wanted to ask you this. This came up last Christmas. I gave an answer and I won't even bore the audience with mine. I'd love to get your answer to this and then I'll secretly know whether we were on the same page, but um a woman of the church came up to me, and I've been asked this before in other venues. You probably have too, and said, "Okay, Greg, when Jesus was five, six, seven years old, um, did he understand who he was?" Which, in many ways, is a loaded question because there's there's so many premises there. You probably want to sort through with the, you know, the one person of Jesus and two natures and that sort of thing. But I just how, how would you answer that question to a member of your church, Rick? That
2: I think I'm going to answer yes. that with another appeal to Calvin. It goes like this: yes. where God makes an end of teaching; let us make an end of learning. Oh, there you go. Yeah, you know, I mean, we have the account in Luke where he's an adolescent and he knows who he is. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, by age um, 12, sure. Yeah, you know, if he, if he, is it is it human nature? Is he self conscious of his deity as a six month old? Yeah. Uh, Ah, you know, the scriptures do not give us data on that. Yeah. And I tremble to tread on that ground. No, that's a good answer. I I mean, clearly, I mean, this is the mystery of the hypostatic union. Yeah. And the incarnation. You have one person who is is the whole time is fully God. Yes. And yet he has the norm, he's a fetus. Right. Hmm. You know, he is an infant. Right. Um what is what level of what, the, the the human and the divine just in terms of maturity level, you know, yeah. just seems so a part of that level uh, i I'm sure that it'll be a fascinating study when we're in glory
1: right right but I
2: I you know it's got you as certainly I would say this, as a human being gains self-awareness, surely his awareness was a divine self-awareness mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we have that, you know, from his adolescent uh, encounter there when, when he's in the temple teaching them. Yes. Um, so, you know, what I love to think of is, uh, Jesus learning the Psalms. Oh yeah. At the kitchen table of Joseph and Mary. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we sing Psalms out of the Psalter in our church mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, we, we sing hymns too, but we, uh, uh, and I often will think about you know my Lord Jesus when he was a boy, sang Psalm one, yeah, sang Psalm twenty three, and you know it certainly before too long he knew it was about him.
1: Yes. I, yes, it's it's such a great mystery. It really is. It is. It is. It and it, it stretches you. That's um, that's my answer was similar. Uh, you know, it was more of the the. You know, we get to something we, we just don't know and we're not going to know. Um, and that is not intended to frustrate us. I think it's intended to deepen our adoration, um, whether that be trying to contemplate the Trinity. Uh, you know, obviously there's a point where our minds break and cannot take it in. Yeah. You know, it's pouring, pouring the ocean into a thimble. Uh, but it's a, um, uh, a tremendous act of worship, I think, to, to contemplate. And I loved your answer there, Rick. Um, and, uh, less Nathan, you have something more serious. We're going to shift to something incredibly trivial. Yeah, just, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, uh, well, but it'll be interesting. That's I, right. I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear what you Jesus is a boy. Yeah. Jesus wasn't just a boy, he was a
2: poor boy. Yes. Yes. Mm. And he was a humiliated boy. Yeah. His family sat on the back row of yeah. the church.
1: Right. <laughs>
3: right.
2: You know, right. So, yeah, it's not just the incarnation, but it's the humiliation.
1: Yes. Mm. That yes. That is part of it as well. And that yeah. is just, that is just majestic. Yeah, yeah. We were um, just talking about that with some uh, friends gathered around here recently. The the John eight passage, you know, and the um, just just the implication that the Jews make uh, when when Jesus is toe to toe with them there in John eight that you know we are not of illegitimate birth, uh, yeah, se- seeming yeah. to imply you know that that shadow would have haunted him and and Mary as well. Really, you know. That's through, right, through and life. and there was
2: slander against him about being you know illegitimate
1: yeah. Uh, yeah that's that's really interesting stuff yeah it, it is yeah. It, and you're right then and that's the stuff you're right we don't really think about you you the, again we have to go to these texts as you so well said rick and we need that the word to interpret these songs to interpret these traditions um yeah and, and, and organic to the incarnation is humiliation yes yeah
0: mm. indeed it's so good we are talking with uh Dr. Richard Phillips, um, co-author, co-editor of uh, Incarnation in the Gospels, um, also studied under James Montgomery Boyce, uh, Christ of Christmas. Um, So two really great books this time of the year um, for people to check out. One of them, a commentary, um, Sermons uh, About Christmas. Um, And then the other one is James Montgomery Boyce's um, commentary sermons on Christmas as well. So we do want to shift gears here because we are talking about Christmas. Everybody has traditions. Uh, We just want to hear some of yours there, Rick. Um, Some things that you guys do around your house that prepare you for this season. uh, favorite readings. I asked this to uh, Greg and Steve yesterday, and they were less than enthusiastic and helpful with this. Uh,
1: <laughs> Rick, I can tell Rick's going to have better answers. <laughs>
0: um, so we just we just want to know what yeah. um, what you guys do in your family that, that just helps you prepare for this time of the year, um, theological yeah. or otherwise, um, traditions, things that, we that actually, you just enjoy. We actually
2: do the Jesse tree. Uh, we started the Jesse tree this morning and uh if you're many of our your listeners will be familiar with that it's a series of Old Testament texts, and you put ornaments on a tree working through the Old testament and into the New Testament on jesus and so our little children uh read the text at the breakfast table and you know and they put it on the tree. We've been doing that for a long time. My wife got that somewhere
3: mm-hmm.
2: um and uh you know as a pastor family, our traditions are so tied to the church, yeah, and uh we live. A, we li, we have lived almost our entire ministry career away from family. Wow, uh, which is no doubt a burden to, to my wife particularly. My, both my parents are with the Lord, okay. um, so uh, uh, we used to when we lived in Philadelphia. We used to on Christmas Day we would try go to both grandparents, one in Philadelphia and one in D.C. So there's always a three and a half hour drive on Christmas Day that that ended. Um, wow. and so, you know, we, we do the church and then we tend to have a quiet Christmas day. Mm-hmm. we we'll, my wife's, my wife's family has a Christmas Eve tradition of coming back from church and everybody breaks up instruments and we play hymns. Oh, the, neat. Uh, and so we're, we're quite a musical family. I have cellists and violinists and my wife's a flutist. And wow. We have, we have multiple pianists and so we will get, we will have a private little orchestra, uh, singing that night, um. And, uh, we used to read the Christmas story, but of course our church does it since we've been here. Yes. And so, uh, so, you know, we're, we're a church family and our, so many of our traditions. Now, one thing that we, we've been trying to schedule since we've been in South Carolina, we drive up into the North Carolina mountains mm. and we cut down a Christmas tree. Oh, nice. Oh, cool. And, uh, that's a lot of it, Cause it's like snowing up there. which yeah. is not fun for us. So, so, you know, we, um, that's kind of it for us mm-hmm. we 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 it's a busy time ministry in some respect yeah. um, we often have a uh a reception for all the officers and wives in the church mm-hmm. that's like a hundred people in our church wow um and so that's uh that it's a uh, uh you know we're 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 trying to make sure everybody's got a place to go for Christmas and those kinds of things yeah. but uh I have to say we very much enjoy it uh. We you know we enjoy being together as a family. This year, for the first year, we have a child out of the home uh, by our daughter Hannah's at college. Wow! And she'll be coming back for college break. And that's so great. The kids are getting a little older, and uh, um, but I I that's kind of our thing. We do the Jesse Tree every day leading up to it, and then we do those church centered activities.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow! Do you uh do do you guys do uh, Christmas Eve? presents, Christmas Day presents? Do of not- course not. That's an yeah. abomination.
2: <laughs> you have no character at all if you do that. Yeah. No.
3: <laughs>
2: I do. I manipulate them. Yes. Uh, for years, I've done the manipulation that the first one to go to sleep will be the first one to open a
1: present.
3: Oh, very <laughs> smart. Ruthless. Yes, yes.
2: You know, but it has to be done or yes. else i never go to sleep. Uh, right that now.
1: is so true. So, so you are a Christmas morning person. We uh, are, and yeah. we...
2: You know, we, we've always gotten lots of gifts from family, and we, we give a lot of gifts, I'm, I'm, I have to say. Yeah. And, uh, and like everybody else, they get opened in an astonishingly short amount of time. Yes, it's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? And, uh, you know, often, uh, yeah, we'll probably throughout the season, it's a pretty social time in the church, and we're probably at other people's homes as well and mm. have people in our homes. Yes. Um, usually for Christmas Day, we're together, though. Oh, that's last great. year, we actually went. I took Christmas off for the first time in my ministry. Wow. And we drove up to my wife's family because, she, you know, bless her heart, she's such a great pastor's wife. Yeah. But she said, you know, I haven't been with my family in like 15 years. Wow. And so I said, no, no, we'll go this year. And that was fun. Yeah. So last year, we all were up in Pennsylvania with Sherrod's family. But, uh, that's great. you know pretty much the pastor is part of the scenery at the church,
1: mm. right? The
2: congregation right. likes the pastor to be there. On yes, Christmas. they do. Yeah. Yes, Eve, they do.
1: You know? Yes, they do. And I'm I'm very blessed, uh, Rick, to uh, have both families in the area, but several pastor friends I have, of course, you know, you've got uh, you know, maybe the wife's families across the country, and it, it it's difficult to juggle, and you know uh, it never bothers me as much, but for some people, having Christmas on the 28th of December. You know, it doesn't quite feel the same. Uh, you know, they're thankful to be together. So uh, I always feel for pastors and their wives in particular uh, that are, yeah, Christmas is a time you mm-hmm. don't generally take off. Like you said, the first time in 20 years, you did it last year. And, uh, you know, that's that's very rare. But I'm that was a good move. I'm sure your wife was very – I'm sure you scored great points that Christmas. <laughs> right? That's good. Well,
2: I have to say that I think one of the sacrifices often made in ministry is living apart from your family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, churches should remember that, that the, the pastor's wife doesn't have a mother-in-law to come over. Right. And are often alone, and they it's a, an important ministry of hospitality to the pastor's family, because often they're, you have family and they don't.
1: Yeah. So including that is very important. Yes, yes. Good word. Very good word.
0: Now, uh, Rick, I'm going to ask you one more question here, um, just to get your thoughts on this. You you can tell that Greg is the uh, pastor in this podcast. He's asking all the deep theological questions, and (laughs) I'm the liquor store manager because I'm asking you all the, uh, you know, silly questions. (laughs) Um, But. What, what are your thoughts on, on Santa Claus here? Just, you know, families who, who participate in that tradition. Um, you know, just talk to us uh, about that because we've had some, you know, conflicting views growing up. Uh, you know, me growing up in my family, different people having conflicting views. There are conflicting views in the church, uh, just in general and, and just your personal thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, I mean, our peer and forefathers would be absolutely horrified.
1: <laughs>
2: no doubt. I mean, almost none of them celebrated Christmas at all. Right. right? Uh, but bear in mind that they were in reaction to papistry, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think that there was something of an overreaction that's understandable. Um, they, you know, Anything that was not biblical, had there's just nothing, because they're so concerned against ritualism and, mm-hmm. and, and Roman Catholicism. Yeah. Uh, People have said to me before, you know, uh, don't you think it's a pagan holiday? Well, it was a pagan holiday. Now it's a Christian holiday. I mean, you know, it's just true that almost if you picked a date in the calendar in which it is least likely that Jesus was born, December twenty fifth might be it. The shepherds were not in their field. Right, right in the heart of that season. and and people go, oh, you have a wreath on your door, which we do, and you have a Christmas tree, and these are pagan things. And my response is. Right, I mean, we're in the Christianity is in the business of redeeming pagan things. Right, Mm -hmm. I myself was a pagan thing Mm -hmm. that was redeemed, and so the fact that we use—I'm sure it's true—that these were, you know, our Germanic forefathers, you know, worshipped them as gods and whatnot. Um, Christianity is in the business of redeeming things, Mm so I've never understood the uh, the the uh, you know the objection to Christmas. Per se, mm. uh, although certainly church worship services should be extremely biblical, mm. right? Yeah. But uh, you know, our Christmas service is the preaching of the word. Yeah, we don't have a Santa Claus sleigh come up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Santa Claus and those sorts of things. You know, we've always we've always sort of done it without making a big deal of it. I mean, in our family, it has been there's no question. If you ask my children what's Christmas about, they say, "Oh, Christmas is worshiping the Lord mm-hmm. for the gift of His birth." Mm-hmm. But we can have fun together, people. I yeah, mean, mm-hmm. lighten up. And I I, th- I actually think for a rigorous reform people like myself, it's important that we have fun. Yeah. And, um, you know, Santa Claus is a cultural legend. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I actually never lied to my children. And I've never I, I've never lied to them about Christmas. I've mm-hmm. never, even when we've done Santa Claus, has kind of been low-balled, but, you know. But you'll find some Santa Claus ornaments. And uh, I think our kids figured out pretty early that, Santa Claus wasn't real, right? Right. We're not investing much. I mean, for a lot of for non-Christian families, that's the whole deal. It is. Yeah. It is. And for us, it's kind of a fun cultural thing to sure. participate, and, and not we don't we don't do it half-heartedly. It's just that our heart is elsewhere, right? Yeah. And so yeah. I, I think that uh, you know, you know, honestly, well-meaning, godly Christians are going to differ on these things. We shouldn't judge one another. Mm-hmm, yeah. But I, I, you know, uh, I don't think that. We should uh, we we can we don't we can have fun in things that the cultures doing that are wholesome. Mm-hmm.
3: Yes, yeah, yeah,
2: and uh, so we've always you know you'll see Santa Claus things around per se. Sure, but I, I think when it's you know it, it's like a lot of things when you have the priorities right, things that out of proportion would be evil are
1: good. Yeah, right. Yeah, right.
2: And so it is idolatrous to make Christmas about Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when Christmas is about Jesus um, and, you know, you teach your children saying, you know, Santa Claus was seen over New Jersey, um, I don't think that you're just sitting and doing that at all. Yeah,
0: right. right. We, well, um, my wife and I, uh, we really enjoy, you know, the she grew up, uh, you know, Santa Claus and all that, not... It wasn't the focus in her house. Um, and I grew up, you know, Santa Claus and all that stuff. One of our favorite, um, things that we've come to appreciate over the years, and I've said this before on this podcast, we have a, um, a picture hanging up in our house that we bring out, or we bring it out every Christmas, and it's a picture of Santa Claus holding the baby Jesus with a tear coming down from his eye. Um, and then we have these ornaments that we set up with Santa Claus kneeling at the cross, kneeling before the cross. And I always go back to um, J.R. Tolkien when he and uh, when he was talking with uh, C.S. Lewis and trying to convert him to Christianity. He one of his things that he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, was uh, essentially all mythology that we have is to point to the true. Myth, which is Christ, mm-hmm. um, and I just I love that the idea that even mythology, with all these comic book uh, comic book stories coming out and being very big, that even in the fantasy, those things are still subject to the truth that is Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, I, I always enjoyed that aspect of of those things.
2: C- clearly, you're a papist sympathizer. And
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> the,
2: uh, well, you know the. the, the the things that resonate in fantasy are redemptive things.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, Lord of the Rings is fascinating because, you know, he's not writing a Christian analogy of the kind that C.S. Lewis did in Narnia. Sure. Right. Right. But he is a, but he's a Roman Catholic and a pretty good one, I think. Yeah. Um, and it's just there, you know, it is redemptive themes and those are the stories that grab people.
1: They are. Absolutely.
2: And, uh, and yeah, and, and so we, there, there is a room for imagination and fantasy and and all those sorts of things. You know, when my my parents were converted, both of them shortly before they died, um, and I was raised in my family growing up. I mean, the night before Christmas was the Christmas ritual. Mm. You know, the Santa Claus story. Yeah, and uh, my my dear mother uh, was visiting us one time before she was converted, and it's Christmas Eve, and she says, "Well, are you going to read the Santa Claus story?" Uh-huh. and my children all look at it we all were like well, we just didn't think to do that
1: yeah, yeah. right right uh, not yeah we I mean, know i mean we're we're reading luke
3: yeah.
1: right yeah right, right. yeah and, and so and Santa's not mentioned uh.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so
2: I, I think that uh, it's true of so many things yeah being truly christ-centered mm-hmm. grants a great freedom to
1: enjoy life both of Yeah, yeah. Well, well said, Rick. I I think that's a great balanced approach. Um, Yeah, I was, you know, going to say, I. Now I'm going to change my sermon series. You know, the changing Satan uh, and Santa. (laughs) Just mix the letters a little bit. no, I'm going to get
2: a hundred letters from people calling me an idolatry. <laughs> <laughs> thank you,
1: guys. Right. See, when, when Nathan grabs
0: hold of these I things. I know, that's right. <laughs>
1: he's a specialist at ruining pastors' <laughs> ministries. No, no, hardly. That's uh, uh, great, great thoughts here tonight, Rick. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. We, uh, we know it's late for both you and us now that we figured out we're all in the same time zone yes. here. Um, but we want to thank you so much for joining us once again, um, Rick Phil. Phillips incarnation in the gospels um check it out um well it
2: Rick- is a pleasure god bless you guys and merry christmas yes, merry christmas yes, you to you too,
0: too you too guys we just rocked the caspa noel
3: style these to 11